This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Writing investigative NPCs. Player feedback. George Gurdjieff. And Salvador Dali. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. It's time for another exciting segment of Ask Ken and Robin, and here Ian Perel asks Ken and Robin, when you write up an investigation scenario for esoterrorists or the like, is there a maximum amount of information you want to give about NPCs? Would you include notes about how they might react to various angles the investigators might try? Is 1,200 words too much for a major NPC? I have my answer in mind, but since I'm uh, kicking the segment, I'm going to throw it over to you first, Ken. Is that too much? I think it probably is, unless the scenario is literally centered around that NPC, right? If, you're, if your goal is to find out, is one little girl possessed, or is one woman uh, a psychic medium, or is one guy the clone of Nirlathotep, yeah, you might want to build out that character with more words. But, for example, the average NPC in the Dracula dossier is about 600 words, and that's with three different versions of the truth attached to them. And since an average gumshoe scenario is about nine or 10,000 words, making over 10% of the scenario one NPC's description, it sounds like you're, you're edging towards over-explaining and over, over-painting as opposed to leaving... A, breathing room for the GM to put their own 
personality into it and their own choices into it, and B, leaving room for the character to bounce around and, and do things in a more creative, spontaneous way, because I find that when you overwrite the possibilities, you wind up closing off dramatic possibility just even though you think what you're doing is helping buttress dramatic possibility. Another issue, and I agree that 1,200 words is, is way too much, and for something like Dracula Dossier or the Amritage Files, the NPCs are not necessarily part of an adventure. They're kind of standalone components that the GM is going to take and then wrap a story into in response to what the players are doing. And that's why you have the alternate versioning. And that's why you maybe have more options and possibilities than I would write into a character in an adventure. I would go even shorter than that, right? That I would um, often in, for example, in the World Breaker campaign that I just polished off and sent off to Pelgrim. That's a big esoterrorist world-spanning campaign that's uh, heading off to playtesting now. Uh, quite often, there there's no separate sidebars that explain the characters. They are just described within the scenes they appear in, and it only gives you a sort of a very clear, vivid idea of each character and then what they might do in that particular scene, and then the rest is up to the GM and the players together to extrapolate, because as you suggest, too much character bio uh, closes off options. And another thing that I find is that, uh, you know, reviewing other people's scenarios that do have big, long chunks of bio and backstory for the characters, the question in my mind is always, well, how does this information actually reach the player interface? Because uh, very often you'll find that it's like, well, this is a, their deepest, darkest secret that they would never reveal re to anyone, or this is what they did in 1962. And I think what you need to do for an investigative scenario is always be thinking about how information reaches the players. So if you are creating a whole ton of backstory, that might help you if you are you know, entering some sort of an improvisational theater situation where your job is to inhabit the character the way a method actor would. But in a lot of cases, I think that a really, really lengthy character bio is just um, kind of uh, overwritten. I guess the longest character bios I've done recently are for Dream Hands of Paris. Most of those are uh, player characters, but there's a couple of key uh, NPCs or GMCs as we call them in Gumshoe, but they're there because they give you a whole chronology that you could be following over a period of many years in, in your campaign. Uh, Ken, are there, uh, what, what tips to sort of expand this question? Cause I think we've kind of answered the numerical <laughs> right, one. Yeah. Um, what tips do you have for writing really great grabbing NPCs that are easy to play and don't require a lot of uh, reading ahead of time in order to do that. What is the what is if we're going to have a really super condensed characters? What are the things that you want to give the GMs and players in order to make them playable for the GM and fun to interact with for the players? I think one of the things that you want to do in Gumshoe is you want to at the very least indicate a interpersonal ability that all of the things being equal is the one that would work on them. Right, Because then you get a, a sense of how to play that character. So if you know that they will respond to intimidation, you can play them maybe a little Peter Laurie-y. But if they respond well to flirting, then you can play them more Sean Connery-y or whatever it is. Right, And so you, have a, you can have a sense of what their personality is open to just with that one word, just with that one thing. And obviously, you know, with uh, the, the sort of the interplay of, of, of gameplay, your job as the GM is to provide these 
the, the clues via these GMCs, via the NPCs, in a fluid and entertaining fashion that moves the, the story along. So you don't, you, you, you don't want to get too stuck on the notion that, nope, he's only going to respond to oral history. Uh, you, you want to be able to say, well, that, that's sort of in the wheelhouse of, of, of gossiping, but it's just a more reassuring gossip than it is. You know, don't, don't worry, I won't tell anyone. It's still sort of gossipy, so I'll, I'll let that come out. Yeah, I'll, I'll often suggest uh, two or three different yeah. persuasion methods, and, but, but that uh, means that the persuasion method you pick changes the flavor of the scene and how it comes out, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're choosing to flirt with the Peter Lorre-type character that you meet in the bar in Vienna, he's going to ask something differently of you at the end of the of the exchange scene, than right. if you decided to bribe him with a negotiation. And so that flavors the scene. It makes it different. It makes it specific to the players, but it doesn't mm-hmm. create a bottleneck where if they don't think to intimidate the guy, they get nothing from him. Right. And then the other thing, uh, when we talk about things like Peter Lorre type, I try to have a strong sense, at least one or two things that catch the the eye or the senses about the character just to present, because I think it helps the GM even to think of what the character is, as well as when they say, oh, she's uh, blonde, uh, 120 pounds, about uh, yay tall, uh, in a dress two sizes too, a red, bright red dress two sizes too small, you instantly have a vision of what that character is, and it's a very stereotypical, very sort of one-dimensional vision, but that's more dimensions than you had, and because it's a stereotype, because it's that very sort of strong uh, pulp archetype is perhaps a nicer way to say it, but it's a stereotype, you you can plug it into the story and instantly have a sense of how they'll respond, whereas if you said, she's 120 pounds, and she believes in her heart that her father never loved her. Well, that's, you know, ma- that's for a different novel. That That's for a different thing than, than Gumshoe. That character, you know, is, is going to be introspective. They're going to be turned inward. You want to give stuff that points outward. Right. And the way to present NPCs in an investigative scenario particularly, but I think also in general, are to think of how these qualities are going to come out through the interaction. So as you suggested, first of all, there's visual cues that tell us about the character and suggest something about them. So the uh, woman in the too tight red dress uh, tells us a number of things. It doesn't tell her it, uh, everything about her, but it gives you a quick image. Or, you know, there's these, the two brothers who run the chop shop in Bangkok, both have long greasy ponytails, but one of them has streaks of gray in it. And otherwise they... Uh, seem identical. Well, that already sort of suggests a relationship between the two guys. The the one is slightly older, but they affect uh, the same uh, look, and therefore that implies that they are uh, you know strong allies with one another, or maybe there's a uh, you know a rivalry between them, and they're each trying to displace one another. But that's sort of a simple cue that people can uh, bounce off of. And then the next question is, what information do they have to provide? Because the currency of an investigative scenario is info, is, is uh, clues and dialogue. And so if you're, there are things that you want to reveal about the character, you can then have that actually come out through what they tell you. So if you want to have a character and express her troubled relationship with her father, she can say, well, I didn't like that guy when I saw him uh, at the cab stand because his look on his face reminded me of uh, my father's when he would come home drunk. And so that's a way to take that sort of introspective inner life and then bring it out into the story. Now, whether that matters 
to the solution of the adventure, or it's just flavor that makes her seem real, uh, is another question that you can answer. Um, and it could be something that makes a character relate to them, right? If you've already established that one of the uh, investigators in the group had a troubled relationship with her father, that gives that player a chance to step up and uh, interact with that in some way. And the obvious way might be that she sort of bonds with her and starts to console her and uses reassurance. Or it could be that she wants to distance herself from her and then comes at her with intimidation because she doesn't uh, like people who remind her of herself. Mm -hmm. So if you take the sort of standard big, long, canned bio approach to NPCs and instead break it down into bullet points of information, which then have an emotional flavor to them, you can pr present a lot more to the players, provided that the players think to ask and do the right things that, that trigger that info. Because the other thing you don't want to do is have a big sort of monologue, you want to structure all of these scenes so that the things that the GMCs say are in response to questions posed to them by the players. Yeah, you want to make sure that the GMC doesn't take over the story. I mean, they, they can maybe take over the scene, although even that I try to avoid just because I actually I lie. I don't try it that I don't try that hard. But you don't want the GMC's presence to overshadow the character's presence in the in the story. I mean, if there's one bit where they're interviewing, you know, the um uh the, the tottery old man who's in the in the back of the, of the library in, in his armchair and his eyes are gazing at you with rat-like hate. That's going to be a good scene. They'll remember that guy, but you you, you don't want that to be the the, the whole thing. You want what you want to to be the the emotional weight that the players take out of it is what first of all where he sent them, what they decided to do as a result of that interview, and also you know their decision to defeat him, to avenge him, to whatever it is. Their decision ha should be the, the thing you carry away. The the player, the NPC, should not necessarily uh, dominate the, the 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 scenario, unless of course the scenario is literally about that NPC, right? If the NPC is you know your Moriarty or your Fu Manchu for that scenario, yeah, they should dominate because the whole scenario is about them. Right, but they would be dominating by being off stage most of the yes, time and yeah, having ideally, other people provide information about them. <laughs> player characters shoot them. <laughs> right, and and so what you can do there is if you have sort of a master GMC who you want to kind of dominate the scene, that is the technique to use, is that think of the adventure as a series of scenes that reveal facts about this main guy who you then, or, uh, or gal or whoever, um, who you uh, then meet at the end, or maybe you meet them at the beginning in disguise or, or whatever, you meet them in their initially innocuous, but you learn throughout the course of the adventure all the little bits and pieces of the bio. So if you've got a character with this really fascinating backstory that you want to reveal, you'd want to reveal it all in one single scene, so find different ways that different people all know little bits and pieces about them. Right. So at the end, when they meet Harry Lyme, yeah. they're really... Or Charles Foster uh, Kane. Or, or Charles Foster <laughs> Kane or whoever, they're really stoked for that, and then that becomes a way of your telling this story about this person in a way that's not about the person as much as it's about the people who are finding out about the person. Because in an investigative scenario, you should always be thinking about how characters are overcoming resistance to gain information. So by definition, almost no one who the characters go to talk to wants to talk to them. They all have different interesting ways, reasons why they don't want to talk. And that, in fact, can be your starting point for creating your cast of characters, is thinking up 
you know, eight different reasons why people don't want to talk about Quandos Vorn. Mm -hmm. Although you also need to think of eight different ways to get them to talk about Quandos Vorn, because there's nothing more frustrating, uh, especially in, in the gumshoe uh, dynamic, than meeting an NPC who you know has a, has something going on and bouncing off them, because players tend to sort of pitbull focus on the guy, and unless your goal is, no, your challenge is to kidnap that guy out of his house, put him in a shipping container, and interrogate him, you know, you've got to figure out, as the GM or as the, the scenario writer, despite their distaste, what do they want more than to not talk to you, or what you know, what, what do they value more than not talking to you? Maybe it's just the health of their delicate little fingers, or maybe it's their, their desire for someone to commiserate with them about how awful their father was. You know, who knows yeah, it's, what it it's is. It's resistance to be overcome, not yeah. resistance that can't be overcome. And it's resistance that can be overcome in a number of ways that, as we said earlier, uh, sort of flavor the, the scene. Mm -hmm. And another way uh, is just to, you know, even if the character only appears in one scene, and you have a, an interesting backstory for them, they could be introducing elements of their backstory in order to throw the character off track. So they know that you want to know about uh, Professor Angel and his uh, tuning device, but instead they start talking about uh, this other professor who, uh, who harassed them in the library, and that's the reason they quit the university. And so you can, again, create sort of flavor and the idea that it's not just a series of stations that you're stopping off at to, you know, hit a number of interpersonal buttons and then eventually they spit forth information. Because one of the, the keys to gumshoe is because it gives you lots of information that some of the information is extraneous and you have to weed out mm -hmm. what the real story is. And so you can also think of, you know, one or two uh, things of what their agenda is or what they would sooner talk about uh, so that they don't necessarily always seem to be resistant. Uh, to, to what the uh, characters are saying. Yeah, or that they, you know, they may not even be resistant. It may be that they don't know what it is that they know that's important. You could have a thing where you're talking to the guy who's an eyewitness, and he thinks he just saw, you know, a drug deal go down. He didn't understand that, that it was as significant as it was. And so you need to get from him, you, you need to get him to understand that this is an important information. And maybe he'd want to help because you're cops or whatever, but he doesn't. He doesn't know that he knows what he, what he knows, and so maybe that's how he resists. There's all kinds of different ways you can, you can go into it. I think with another thing that you want to do with, with characters when you're writing them up as opposed to um, playing them in the moment is figure out how they're connected to something else in the setting that can be helpful because there's nothing... It, it seems a little artificial, although in some games that's what you want, especially your sort of uh, Hollywood gothic stuff that we did in um, uh, Shadows Over Foamland, but it seems a little annoying if a character is just sort of set there like the glowing guy in the computer game. And all right, now I have to go up and, and touch him until he tells me to, you know, go steal some boots for him or whatever, get my mission. It, it's, it's, it's annoying. You want, I want anyway, to provide a connection for that character into the rest of the universe or into some other part of the mystery. And by building up that web, and you, you, we sort of touched on it when you were talking about everyone knows a little piece about Harry Lime or Laura or whoever it is. And so, they'll they'll be connected in that way. But I think it's fun if they're connected to the setting or they're connected to another NPC that you might meet later or they're connected maybe to one of the players, although that's the kind of thing a GM almost always has to do and a game to, a scenario writer can't so much do. But there should be either a thematic connection or ideally, I think, a... A connection you could track down, assuming you could interview everyone and look at everyone's diary. And another model for this sort of thing is the classic 
uh, Law and Order show, not any of the spinoffs particularly, but in the first half of the Law and Order episode where the uh, cops are trying to develop the basic information on the case, whenever they go to talk to a witness, the witness always has something they would rather do mm. than talk to the cops. And it's not necessarily anything that relates to the grand mystery. It's just no one really has time to talk to the cops. We're all busy yeah. uh, and nothing good can come of this. So if you kind of look at those things where they have all these cool, colorful throwaway characters who don't actually matter to the rest of the mystery, but are just fun in that scene, just look at that show and see how quickly they are sketched, how they ha sort of have one thing that they're focused on. They have an attitude and an agenda, and the cops have to sort of break through that attitude and the agenda. And sometimes you have the overly helpful uh, person who's providing you all sorts of useless information. It's even worse, really. Uh, right. And so you can sometimes flip that on its head by having, you know, a character approach them. But uh, after a couple of sessions, any seasoned group of investigative players is going to realize that anyone coming to them to volunteer information is useless at best and trying to uh, mislead them at, at worst. But I think we've uh, pretty much handled uh, all of the points of how to uh, present an investigative character in order to make it properly interactive and think about them in terms of the scene they're in rather than about sort of a bio floating on its own. And so I think we're ready to move on to our next segment. a fan of investigative role-playing, weird horror, or Lovecraftian stories? If not, you are listening to this podcast by some peculiar accident. But if so, head on over to Kickstarter now to check out Weird Detective, the tabletop role-playing game from Covetous Poet Publishing. Weird Detective is a rules-easy system with in-depth character creation. Play detective solving strange and horrible crimes caused by supernatural forces. The core book includes the game mechanics, character creation, rules for mythos insanity, and traumatic stress. Also included a full background section covering the modern, weird horror-based setting. Plus, it's available for only $5. The Kickstarter also features three epic adventures featuring murderous witches, undead fiends, and a journey to the fabled Plateau of Lang. Along with four upcoming system expansion packs that add optional in-depth rules. And new background material for ancient civilizations, the living dead, alien creatures, and terrifying deities. All available in cost-saving PDF package deals. Weird Detective is available on Kickstarter through January 2nd, so check it out to see more. The, the put-away dice bag, the empty bottles of Coke and Mountain Dew, the tiny scattering of orange dust in the air. Tell us, we've entered the friendly confines of the gaming hut, but we've entered it, sadly, after the game is over. Robin, what do we do after the game is over? What are we talking about if we're talking about it after we're done killing orcs? Well, normally, in my sessions, uh, when the game is over, we go back to chatting about things. But, uh, <laughs> yes, we talk about um, uh, Interstellar, the same thing we were talking about before the game. Why? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, but uh, there's a, an interest, I think, on the part of a lot of GMs in sharpening their game, or maybe your campaign has gone a little sideways and the players aren't um, uh, keying into it. And so I thought what we talked about today is best practices for gathering player feedback and doing 
post-mortems. And I guess the way that I'm framing that indicates that I'm skeptical of this in a couple of ways. Um, and so the, the trick, I think, is to do it in a way that doesn't trigger the geekly impulse to overthink, which is sort of like telling giraffes not to be tall. Yeah, don't stretch your neck, giraffes. So the first point is if you want to actually sit down all your players together afterwards and get them to offer you feedback, uh, for one thing, people are going to be resistant to uh, doing anything that uh, sort of breaks the fourth wall or spoils their sense of fun, or uh, maybe they haven't articulated why it is that they're not uh, keying in. It's easier to say what you like about a situation than what you don't want. There's a lot of perils, and I've seen in some cases when I'm playtesting that the players will have a great time throughout the course of the session, and then afterwards they put on their overthinking hats and talk themselves out of having had the out of great good time. time I saw them have. Yeah. Um, so one trick I would suggest, first of all, is if you're going to do the classic postmortem, don't invite people to be even constructively critical in a, in a negative way, but ask them to do it in a positive way. Flip the question and say, what would you like to see more of in this campaign? Because then that enables them to give you the same information that you're looking for, which is how the heck do I get this to gel the way I want it to without inviting a lot of critiques in terms of don'ts, what, what you're looking for is what do you want to see? And even then, people will have difficulty identifying what it is that they uh, want, especially if they've been thinking too much about role-playing theory and there's a variance <laughs> between what they have taught themselves that they want and what they actually want. But that's a, a good first step is to... Well, I mean, in, in fairness, they may still want that thing that they read about in role-playing theory, but they're not exactly sure how they can get there because the guy writing it up on, you know, story games or whatever was either really good and convincing, which a lot of those guys are, or they just haven't turned that corner, you know, inside, you know, their gaming life that says, oh, I understand that I can just let the designer make all the decisions, or I don't mind not rolling dice ever, or I like scene framing, or you have to sort of it, a lot of these uh, techniques are acquired tastes. Yeah, and, and I don't mean to suggest that everybody who has a theoretical point to make is has a false consciousness about it. Yeah, right. It's just that sometimes that's a problem. I mean, it's like, I would like to like scotch, right? I think that it would be fun to like scotch. But the trouble is, a lot of scotch, I have not turned the, 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 the whichever corner it is, the, the olfactory corner, that lets me... Um, pick out the, the the flavors of scotch the way that, say, my, my our buddy Will Heinmarch can. And so I, I can't like scotch that way. And I think a lot of people, they're, they're on these sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, very sort of a theoretical or intellectualized or, or hyper-focused or, or experimental areas of the Internet, or they've gone to uh, Games on Demand or some other awesome time at a convention, and they feel like they want to be up there doing that. But like everything else, there's there's sort of a road to it, and if you haven't gone all the way along that road, if you haven't started out with the, the simple, easily understood space sides and then sort of slowly moved your ways up, you're not going to, you can't just jump right into the, the, the highlandest of highland and start drinking that um, uh, peat and rope blend and understand why it's good. Right. But also, there's the, uh, with scotch, for example, <laughs> to maintain the analogy, there are oh, no. things, <laughs> there are things that we know, you know, this one is peaty, this one is smoky, but you can't learn whether you like peaty ones more than you like smoky ones until you just try a bunch of them and experience right. them. And so uh, I think one of the tricks about um, if you're drilling down into what people are saying, if you, I mean, for a lot of times, if people just say, well, 
I'd like to fight more spiders. Mm-hmm. That that's pretty easy to deliver yeah, on. Right, yeah. Or I would. I was hoping we would get back to the plot line about the uh, the lich in the crypt and mm-hmm. this bit in the city seems cool, but I'd rather be off doing that. Now I guess that one raises a question: Well, why didn't you say during the session that you character in character that you would like to do right. that? But whatever. Because they sensed that everyone else was having fun in the city. That's why. Right. So you can figure out. Okay. Well, I uh, sounds like I would like smoky scotches, and then until you. You might try a bunch of smoky scotches, and then you, you don't so much. Right. Um, and so, during a postmortem, I would say once the talk starts to th- turn theoretical, to drill back down to more of a practical. But what would you like to be able to do, mm-hmm. uh, or what tone would you like to see happen, or what technique would you like us to play with more, so that you're jumping down from the analytical level to the practical problem solving level because you can talk for half an hour about your different views of um, theory of what should and shouldn't be in a game and whether illusionism is okay or illusionism is the devil but that still doesn't get you to the next step of well you know what do we actually do next session Mm -hmm. and i think you can have you you can have sort of a tenor of uh discussion you someone can say i I want to be able to control more stuff in the game world. I want my character to have more, uh, more, more impact on the, I want destructible terrain, as they say in, in video games. Um, and so that can be, you know, that can just be on a straight level. I want to level up more, or it can be, I want to play in a game where the GM is in the say yes or roll the dice mode, or I want to play in a, a game world with a robust enough rule system that, that we have rules for this. And you could be saying any one of those three things when you say, I want to influence the, 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 the outside world more. Um, and then a lot of that is going to come down to people just knowing what you've been playing. And I think that a lot of times, if you've been playing RPGs for any great length of time, you understand when a session was better than others and when one was worse than others. And a lot of times you can just sort of say at the very tail end of it, at, as you're packing up, it's like, well, next time we'll get out of these swamps and go into the Crypt of the Lich King. And everyone will sort of nod and say, yeah, I think that's probably best. And you don't have to s- sit down and have a whole disquisition about why uh, flailing around in the swamps was not as much fun as it sounded like. Um, <laughs> and and Lord like knows, that last swamp flailing my, we had. My players have called me on this, the, what, what they call the Source of the Nile uh, game where all of a sudden I will decide that it would be awesome to go and do a a, a, a sort of a journey-based uh, set of, of, of adventures where each adventure is a, is, a, is a signpost on the journey, and then when you get to the end of the journey, it's going to be really fun and climactic. And that's happened to us once or twice. We did a really good uh, sort of Lewis and Clark bit in the middle of my GURPS Cabal game. But more often, it was the Falkenstein quest for the Source of the Nile that turned into quest for getting out of the Source of the Nile quest because it was so so very tiresome and horrible. And that's happened to me, I think, because it's one of my besetting sins as a narrative guy that I like these sorts of, of quest narratives. comes from reading the Odyssey too early, I suspect. But um, they uh, they call me on it, and, and by now they know me well enough to call me on it when it looks like we're going to, you know, Ken, are we sure we want to do all 12 hours of the night? Maybe pick out two hours of the night that are really good hours, and we'll just do those. And it's like, yeah, all right, you probably make a good point, uh, oh, occultist and person who's gone on the quest of the Nile before. So there are, there are things that you will recognize in your own gaming that are problem areas or places where the fun teeters more dangerously over the cliff. And 
if you've gone over it, you'll know it, and your players will know it, and it shouldn't take you any great amount of time to say, all right, you know, correct. And worst case scenario, you say, well, that last hour was pretty dire for everyone. Uh, fortunately, um, you, <laughs> there, there's a pearl of, of, of hour worth of time reversing at the bottom of the swamp, and maybe we'll just start over uh, next week from there as opposed to from the miserable place we've all gotten to. And I, I don't necessarily say you want to do the, the, the rewind. I prefer the fast forward um, to the rewind because then it, it gives the uh, players more more fun ways to insert their own matter into the into the story. But every now and again, you just want to sort of pull the button. But what you don't want to do is overanalyze why it went wrong because then not only do people talk themselves out of the fun that they did have, they talk themselves out of the notion that it's ever going to be fun again in some cases. Right, and that's an instance of the players basically, uh, if you were to put the question to them, what do you want to see more of? They would say, we would like to see more of the original premise instead of the GM's default premise that is snuck in because he got tired that night. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, often I find that the answers to the questions, if you've got the same group of players and some campaigns gel and some don't, which has certainly been my experience, often the thing that, that needs to be fixed is hard-baked uh, into either the premise of the uh, game that you all decided to go, you know, play uh, rodeo clowns in space, and then it turns out that none of you actually really wanted, there's not, that's not that interesting to you. Um, or for a more specific example, when I was playing the uh, playtest version of the D&D 5 rules for uh, the consulting uh, thing I did for them, that I decided, well, let's do a really super old school dungeon crawly game in a world where all of the elements of a D&D &D world are just reawakening. So, you know, there's been peace in the land for generations. And you when you enter the dungeon, that's the first dungeon anybody's seen in in decades. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turned out this particular group just wasn't all that stoked to do something old schooly and dungeon crawly. Right. Um, and there wasn't anything that I could point to and go, well, if I just, you know, added this element or that element, it would be better. Uh, some nights were more fun than others. Uh, inexplicably, uh, locking them in the dungeon was more fun than allowing them to uh, <laughs> chip away at it one encounter uh, at a time. But basically, the premise of that just didn't turn out to be a huge grabber for anybody. And another reason that you're going to even have people less likely to tell you is that the cast of characters doesn't hasn't really gelled that the, uh, the not enough of the players brought their a game in terms of coming up with really cool new play, uh, characters to play or the uh, player the characters might be interesting but they don't interact interestingly so that that can be the difference between uh and otherwise, you know, sort of wayward, loopy campaign. If you still, if everybody loves the characters and the way that they interact with each other, you've got a game. Well, that's not something that you, as GM, have power to ensure, although you can certainly use rule systems that do more to make that happen. Uh, nor is it something that players are going to want to say to each other is that, well, I kind of feel that uh, Jeb's character uh, is boring. And uh, I also have no reason to interact with Adele's character. And once you've got that, you've A, got a problem you can't solve, and you've hurt each other's feelings. Yeah, um, I think that it's... I mean, the, the, the thing about gaming, and certainly a gaming session as we understand it, is that there are so many inputs that 
if you are spending enough time looking at the specific inputs to figure out what might be going wrong, you've already done it wrong because you're not experiencing the, the, the sort of the summa, the whole of it, the stew. You're, you know, picking over how many grains of rosemary we're in and you're not, and, and you wind up unfunning yourself. And so it, it can be a very frustrating thing to do post-mortem player feedback because we're, as you say, we're nerds. We overanalyze. We pick things to death. We haven't seen the new Star Wars until we've argued about the new Star Wars for, you know, years in some cases. And, and so... Well, fortunately, they're just going to release this one a minute at a time over a period of 12 years so that people can have time to analyze uh, each minute. So we've got a whole month to do the, the hilt on a new lightsaber. Mm -hmm. It's going to be yeah, great. No, I mean, yeah, J.J. Abrams is a genius, and I've never said different except every time the words J.J. Abrams have come out of my mouth. And so the notion of going into the game preparing to post-mortem it is, you know, not to you know give too much credence to the romantics, but there's a little bit of truth to Wordworth's old thing: we murder to dissect, right? That you mm -hmm. know you can't yep. you you can't take apart. Uh, it'd be like going into a jazz performance and not letting the music follow you, right? I mean, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I don't know. Bob sounds a little flat. I don't, I don't think that uh, you, 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 you've now wrecked it for yourself, regardless of whether Bob was a little flat. And once you've wrecked it for yourself, it's a collaborative experience. And one guy not having fun is worse in uh, role-playing than it is in a movie theater, right? If, if I'm in a movie theater and there's one guy who's not having fun and the rest of us are all enjoying the hilt on the new lightsaber, I don't care as long as I stay off the internet. But the... Um, uh, <laughs> but... In a role-playing session, one guy not having fun, one guy not liking the spiders or the swamp or the quest, is really going to uh, put a put a damper on everybody's fun, even if they are really, you know, if they really own it and they're trying not to, you know, get their negativity on everyone else, they're still not contributing, they're still not playing, they're still not in the group, and... I prefer a game where everyone is in the group and everyone is active, and even if we all interactively go over the cliff together, I like that better than a game where everyone's sort of pulling in their horns a little bit and looking around and saying, okay, now, is this the time where I should try and romance one of the spiders? Because I said I wanted more romance. And, you know, so I, I just, I feel like you can overanalyze the gaming experience to death, and ideally, you're getting back together the next week to do it again. It's like baseball. All 162 games are not going to be freaking Hall of Fame highlight real moments. There's going to be some real dogs out there. You just play the next one. I, I really agree with you about the dangers of overanalyzing. And perhaps uh, you want to go one step further is uh, rather than even saying, what would you like to say see more of, which is a more positive version of what would you like to see less of, but just... Uh, even take it out of the realm of good, bad, or analysis and just say, any requests for next week? Um, and then that can remain on the level of creative uh, thinking rather than on the level of uh, analytical thinking. So then you could say, oh, well, I, I'd like to go meet the king, or do you want to prepare maybe uh, an encounter with the lava man? So that's a way for players to uh, give you cues is what they like to see more of. But it's, again, staying on that practical level and getting out of that sort of deadly theoretical level that kills fun and engagement. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of it, I think, is, is also the GM's job, like everything hard is, is to listen to when players are having fun and just, you know, smooth the path in front of the fun, like curling, right, to use a Canadian metaphor. You know, you're, you want the, the little curling stone to go in a direction, so you've got to sweep the ice clean in that direction. That's your job as the GM. If the players are having lots of fun with the lava men, and they think the lava men are the 
best foes ever, you're like, okay, I'm going to add some more lava men. That was really terrific. Or I'm going to make sure that, you know, when I have one place to put the all-seeing eye of Agamotto, it's going to be in the volcanic crater, not in the swamp. Uh, yes, and uh, I think speaking of overanalyzing things and beating them to death, it's time for another segment. <laughs> Consulting occultist, as he has been for several weeks now, continues his sojourn in Paris. I think he's uh, initially went to help us talk about Dreamhounds of Paris, but now he's just enjoying the food. And, <laughs> it's uh, not an either-or. <laughs> it's not an either-or. Well, he has a whole week uh, between uh, podcast recordings. Uh, this time, though, we're going to talk about a figure uh, who your Dreamhounds of Paris characters can actually go and meet because he's actually active uh, in... Uh, Paris in the 20s and 30s in real actual life, not in, in resurrected ghoul form. So we'll back up a bit and get the backstory and the context later. But Ken, if our characters hear that there's a mystic in Paris who says that people in their daily lives are asleep and need to be awakened, uh, you're not wanting tell uh, Andre Breton about this because he's heard that this guy practices an esoteric Christianity and he likes the first thing and not the second thing, but you want to go talk to him. So what happens when we as player characters in Dream Hounds of Paris go to meet George Gurdjieff? Well, I think a lot of it depends. Um, if your character is wealthy, George Gurdjieff will demand money from you. If your character is female, he will try to um, have sex with you under the guise of offering you his guruhood. If your character is sort of a, a normal person, he will bore your character to death. <laughs> but if you are approaching him in the sort of wheedling, uh, master teach me the, the secrets of awakening, then he will make you read his uh, manuscript in progress, the Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, which he starts writing after his uh, near-fatal car crash in 1924, that sort of means that he can't necessarily be an exemplar of the full uh, physical life that he wanted to be. And so he has to now do the work, as he called it, through making you read something bloody impossible to read. So set the scene for us a bit. What does he? What does he look like? What do we? Uh, where do we go to see him? How do we arrange to see him? And and uh, what is? How does he strike us when when we meet him in the scene? Uh, Gurdjieff looks like a bit character in a Peter Ustinov movie. He has got a big bristly uh, handlebar mustache. He's bald. He's got staring, crazy occultist people eyes. He's not a super tall guy. He's a, he's a, a Caucasian uh, in the sense that he's from the Caucasus Mountains, uh, you know, sort of a beaky nose. And um, he's in, in a little bit of, uh, depending on when you meet him after his uh, car crash, he's not at his, uh, his, his best physically, but eventually his, um, you know, course of personal exercise brings him back around, but he, you can still see that he's, he's not carrying himself as confidently. He's probably mad about that uh, because of the, of the whole bit where a, a car has disproven his whole theory of life. Uh, and, and when you, you meet him, he is going to be at his apartment on Rue des Colonels Renard. It's, it's where he moves after the, um, uh, the Fontainebleau Chateau, where he had 
his uh, priory, his uh, Institute for Harmonious Living was set up in the 20s. Uh, he ran out of money um, and shut it down. Ruining the harmoniousness. It, it did ruin the harmoniousness. It was probably not super harmonious even before that, uh, what with uh, his famous female clients either... It does sound like special pleading. Yes, either being nailed or dying, as the case may be. And then he moved into his uh, his flat in the 30s, um, and, and so he... Uh, he, he he would probably be at El Rue de Colonels Renard, or maybe you would see him at a different apartment in Paris before he moved in, into it. But he's not out in the country at Fontainebleau, which I think is sort of what we have the sense of if we've read Uspensky or we've read um, uh, Catherine Mansfield or any of the people that were sort of responsible for giving him really great publicity in, uh, hilariously, and for your surrealists, uh, hatefully, the modernist movement. I mean, he's, he's the modernist's favorite occultist because he too is, is, is tiresome. And, and so when you, when you approach him, you basically have to meet a guy who knows a guy. Um, or if you're a surrealist and you can stand him, you can go talk to a uh, Rene Domal, right? Who is a, a poet and a literary scholar and critic and basically made his life's work to annoy the crap out of Andre Breton. And so he got exiled from the movement practically even before he joined it, and he got exiled from even being invited into the movement after the third or fourth time that he refused to even to even consider listening to what Andrew Breton thought. He he would sort of um talk about how um the um uh, the, 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 the surrealists um were no longer in, in, in touch with the real and uh his his best uh, come comeback on Breton was I'm worried that you'll find yourself in danger of appearing in histories of literary criticism. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so your, your entree to this guy is you say, oh, I have some great gossip on Breton. And by the way, could you introduce to me Gurdjieff. to Gurdjieff? And, and Domal is, is a big Gurdjieff uh, follower, and he's sort of a off-again, on-again uh, acolyte of, of Gurdjieff. And so he's going to be your, your, your sort of in, inlet. Right in the 30s, he's mostly working with women. Uh, he has his little, uh, uh, Gurdjieff is, he's got his little circle called The Rope, which is uh, an all-female, um, what do I want to say? Uh, cult group of uh, students, whatever school, the inner, inner circle. circle, and and that's a delightfully sinister name. What was it meant to convey? I, I think that the rope, and again, you know, parsing Gurdjieff is is more work than I think it's worth. But uh, I think the rope he does call it the work. That's so <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. It's, it, no, it's, he's is what it says on the label. Yeah, no, he's he's not obscure in that sense. I, I think what the rope is is that it is a bunch of. Fibers that are all twisted together and create a a a, uh, a narrative or a continuity, right? And so his notion is that all of these women become the individual fibers. He Gurdjieff will twist them together into the rope, and once you've tied that into a knot or you've made a, a circle with it, you've created a larger dimensional truth that that links all of them. He's very much about there being sort of uh, like you mentioned, uh, all mankind is asleep, and some people have moments of waking. And some people uh, can force themselves awake, and your goal is to become the fourth kind of person, the person who is always awake effortlessly, and that is what the fourth way is supposed to do, because it unifies uh, the yogi and the monk and the, um, I forget the other one, but it's the shaman or something. And then you're, you're supposed to uh, pull all of, those, all of those bits together into the fourth way, and you're supposed to be able to do incredibly hard physical exercise. He does a lot of stuff with dance and with physical movement. You're supposed to be able to uh, 
figure out what Gurdjieff's writing means. So you, that's your your reasonable, <laughs> rational part. And of course, you're supposed to discard your, your emotional connections to things. And you're supposed to have emotional mastery, and that's the emotional mastery right. part. And and if you're the jazz pianist Keith Jarrett, you uh, improvise hour long jazz solo piano pieces. Uh, there are a lot of uh, artists and creative people who were influenced by yeah. him. So is Gurdjieff a sort of uh, fun? extrapolatable uh, occultist or is he uh, more verging toward the side of the uh, sort of philosophical guru who is not particularly laden with plot hooks? I think that he's kind of laden with plot hooks just because he does, he is part of that Russian revolutionary or pre-revolutionary Russian order where he's hanging out with all these other magicians and weirdos in Russia. He basically walks out of Russia on foot after the, 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 the revolution. He, he does set up this, you know, um, uh, the chateau at Fontainebleau. So he's got this sort of weird, uh, cult thing going on. People do keep dying around him. Uh, his wife he kills by treating her cancer with radium, which <laughs> is exactly the wrong way to do it. And Catherine Mansfield dies of tuberculosis under his care, basically by refusing proper medical care. And so he, he's got a lot of, um, uh, He's, he's got a lot of sort of stuff sticking onto him. He's not as much fun as Crowley. Crowley is out there, you know, summoning demons and demanding things and getting into fist fights and having all kinds of adventures. Whereas Gurdjieff is mostly just sort of tucked away in his, in his chateau or in his apartment. But there's a lot of stuff that could lead you back to him. And he can be sort of your, your eerie mastermind sitting there with his crazy staring Greek wrestler uh, looking head. Right. And for, and for the purposes of a Dream Hounds of Paris campaign, he could give you the uh, text or bit of information that maybe he doesn't even really fully understand. But with your existing understanding of the dreamlands, you might understand his impenetrable writing better than even he does. And you can learn that what it means to become fully awake is not necessarily what uh, Gurdjieff thinks, but in fact, is something that for your own perceptions breaks down the wall between the dreaming world and the waking world so that you are seeing Celeface overlaid over Paris yeah, or right. you're seeing dream Paris overlaid over real ordinary Paris. So you're, you know, striding uh, to Certa to meet Andre Breton and the other guys. And then all of a sudden you see a um, member of the great race of Yif. Uh, float by mm -hmm. and you could go and interact with him even though you're not dreaming and so that could be something that could uh, up the stakes part way through a campaign is that your uh, perceptions of how these two things interrelate become clearer and that might allow you to go into the dreamlands and manipulate the dreamlands in order to change people's minds in the real world or it might just drive you crazy faster yeah the once you start adding lovecraft to uh, gurdjieff then you start getting into your sort of from beyond area where you know, you open your eyes too wide and you're going to see everything. And that may not be the best thing in the world. The, the fourth way, the fourth kind of man may be the kind of man that, like you suggest, exists in all times and spaces simultaneously, which means that they are basically either near Lothotep or they have opened themselves up to every possible awful thing happening to them. And I think that it, if you're going to use Gurdjieff as a major figure, as opposed to as the sort of guy who provides the key without knowing it that you talk about, um, and it might be through his uh, his music. He had a lot of crazy musicological theories that I don't even begin to understand. But he talks about the the seven tone scale and all kinds of other weird stuff. And he composed uh, music as well, right? There are recordings. Yeah, of his... he composed a lot of music, and he was also very influential in other uh, musicians. Uh, they would sort of go to the Gurdjieff camp, and then they would come back out and um, uh, and wind up uh, uh, doing stuff. And my buddy Frank Lloyd Wright uh, was a big Gurdjieff fan because his wife 
was a huge Gurdjieff uh, disciple before she married Frank Lloyd Wright. So that is the sort of thing that happens when one has a wife. You you pick up her interests, much like Sheila got me into Bollywood. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, Gurdjieff doesn't live uh, hugely past this period. He is born in 1866. He dies in 1949. Are there um, more elements to the story if you get past the uh, Dreamhounds period, or is this the most interesting time to interact with him? Um, I don't even think the Dreamhounds period is necessarily the most interesting time. The 20s when he's in Fontainebleau, or the teens when everything is going to hell and he's wandering all over the place, or even possibly the Victorian era, the back in the original Dreamhound, the, the symbolist Dreamlands era, when Gurdjieff is wandering around Central Asia meeting, you know, monks from Lang and whatnot. Uh, maybe that's when he's also an interesting guy. But I think the flaunt and blow is, is sort of his, his high point before the, the, the car crash and before he has to give up the, the mansion. That's sort of when he's, he's getting ready to do something awful. And, and, and so maybe what you might want to discover is who tried to kill Gurdjieff in 24 and was it a good thing or a bad thing that he got knocked out of his, uh, out of his path to the, to the full work. Um, and that might be a, a question. I think that after the war, he sort of, he, he basically lives off, you know, his, his disciples like, like you do. And did he stay in Paris through the occupation? Yeah, he was, he was still there. He was still teaching during the occupation. He was, he was somehow selling, uh, Persian rugs throughout the occupation. And in fairness to, um, uh, Gurdjieff, he didn't, you know, once he's down to the, the contents of his apartment and Nazis are everywhere, he is not as big a jerk as he is before that, and he, 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 you know, he'll sell a rug and then he'll give money from the rug sale to other people in his building that he knows, you know, can't get food or whatever. So he's not, he's not an entirely horrible human being like Crowley is, but he's, he's not a very nice guy. I don't like him. And what is his uh, influence over occult thought today? Is it sort of uh, compartmentalized so that there are still Gurdjieff uh, followers and that doesn't spill over much or has that, uh, are there things that he talks about that he originated that are now part of a broader new age thought? I, I think that G there are definitely still Gurdjieff followers. There's still Gurdjieff movements around. There's probably a Gurdjieff movement in any, any big city in the West, uh, now. But the thing about Gurdjieff is that because his central teachings are so impossible to read because Beelzebub's tales to his grandson and meeting with remarkable men are so elusive and thick. The kinds of lazy thinkers who make up most uh, new age writing, they bounce off it, right? They don't try to go into it in the same way that Swedenborg doesn't really have as big an effect as he ought to because Swedenborg is a, a tough road to hoe. Um, I think Gurdjieff has the same problem. Gurdjieff has been simplified more and people recognize his name more, I think, and so you'll see, for example, little bits of Gurdjieff, like the Enneagram shows up all kinds of different places and people use it to, you know, do, you know, Zodiacs and all kinds of other stuff. And, and what is an Enneagram? The, the Enneagram is his uh, sort of geometric or geomantic figure that is the, um, the, the way that he explains the, the, the nine points of the universe or it, it's got something to do with his musical theories. I don't think anyone knows. Gurdjieff may not have known. He may have drawn it and thought it was awesome looking, but it's a... Uh, but it's the sort of thing that because it's a relatively clear little diagram, you can put your own meaning onto it. And so people use it for uh, palmistry and they use it for astrology and they use it for all kinds of different things. And like I say, to for, as, as a musical um, uh, guide, although, of course, since there's nine points on it and Gurdjieff had a seven point scale, I'm not even sure how that's supposed to work. 
So there's little bits of Gurdjieff and the notion that, you know, we're asleep and we need to wake up. That, of course, goes all the way back to Gnosticism. So it's hard to say, you know, to what extent that particular version of Gnosticism is influential in the New Age or if the New Age is just automatically flowing into Gnosticism because that's the gutter right. of thought. <laughs> yeah, that, that just says have a spiritual opinion. Right, yeah. And, and so the... Um, and also, Gurdjieff's notion that everything about it is super hard work, I think it appeals more to, like, novelists. So, like, uh, Fowles' The Magus is a more Gurdjieff-y novel than it is any other sort of uh, mag magical tradition. But real magicians don't get into magic because they want to work hard. They get into magic to, you know, have sex with idiots and do drugs. And that's the opposite of working hard. So it's harder to, I think, take bits out of Gurdjieff and, and, and uh, mash it up and, and feed it to people uh, than it is to do that with Crowley, for example. So any uh, parting thoughts on uh, putting Gurdjieff in your gaming? I, I think that Gurdjieff can make a pretty a, a pretty awesome villain if that's what you want to go. I mean, you just look at a picture of him and you're like, yeah, that, that guy's got something going on. But I find Gurdjieff so so tiresome as a person and as a thinker that I wouldn't bother doing it necessarily, or I would use you know, one of the myths about Gurdjieff, that under the name of Dorjieff, he was a spy for the uh, uh, for, for the uh, Germans or the Japanese or the Russians in Tibet. And so I would maybe put Gurdjieff in under a pseudonym, or I'd have a Gurdjieff tulpa that goes around that's been created by his will and goes around strangling people uh, like um, uh, Tor Johnson or something. I might, I might sort of use Gurdjieff as, as scenery as opposed to as a central figure. But if he was a central figure, he's going to be anti-surrealist because he is a modernist. He is very much the opposite of those guys. He, and, and, and they don't like his main disciple uh, in Paris at this time. So he can be a bad guy for your uh, campaign, even if he's a bad guy who has information that you might need or is a, is a danger you need to stop, which is another possibility. Well, I guess then uh, in that case, it's time to stop talking about a megalomaniac of modernism and move on to a megalomaniac of surrealism. The dangling telephones, the gibbet-like structures that sway where there is no wind, the elongated heads, and the enormous mustache that has suddenly appeared on your face tell us that you have entered a particularly evocative and, oddly enough, lucrative corner of the culture hut. And here in this corner of the culture hut, you can stand on a beautiful Persian carpet and look out over the utter destruction of the universe because you are inside the one man who crosses the streams, uh, despite that being a bad idea, Mr. Salvador Dali. And Robin, what is the one thing that you want everyone to know about Salvador Dali that is not related to a mustache or a watch? Well, playing him is like playing the wizard. Yeah. <laughs> so, in Dreamhounds of Paris, uh, in our playtest groups, uh, the most popular character to play is Salvador Dali. He has the highest dreamscaping rating. He has the most power to mess with the dream uh, world, although he's not like a, a measure of magnitude higher than the other characters, but he's got the highest number. And he is the trickster figure. He's the uh, guy who comes in to... Uh, due to Andre Breton, what Andre Breton did to Tristan Zara. He is the counterforce to uh, Breton. He is the uh, one who is the most recognizable to the general public as a figure of surrealism. Uh, later in his life, he becomes a, a big star 
uh, of the art world, or, or rather of the media world, after he sort of leaves the uh, the art world behind and is kind of the uh, he's the template both for Andrew Warhol and for uh, Thomas Kincaid, uh, and he is uh, full of contradictions and craziness, and uh, his uh, paintings are the ones that you are probably thinking of if you were thinking of uh, surrealist uh, paintings. Uh, but in his early days, the days that you see him uh, in Dreamhounds of Paris, when he's sort of at the peak of his interestingness as an artist when he creates uh, in a few short years all of the sort of epic images that you associate with him and many of them are actually very small little panels if you go to see the persistence of memory which is one of the melting clocks at the museum of modern art you uh, wind up seeing a much smaller image than you think it's going to be if you're used to seeing it on posters and stuff but he uh, is the one who sort of creates the one of the visual languages for uh, surrealism his pictures really look like the dreamscape and he is just uh, fun to play because there is so much uh, wildness in his storyline he is not originally he's always an egomaniac but originally he's a sort of an introverted frightened egomaniac who uh, talks in this babbling stream of language the first time he goes to paris he's terrified to even take a taxi he needs someone strong to take him in hand and help him through life and that winds up being his uh, his wife gala and he yeah, with uh, so many of us <laughs> yes um he he really needs uh, and she is very much his opposite number and she's very uh, flinty and steely and controlling and uh he is also a theorist. He also writes poetry, comes up with something called the paranoiac critical method, and his idea is all about having opposites collide and do battle with each other. And that's uh, part of why uh, he drives Breton crazy is because he's uh, trying to displace uh, Breton. And so he makes sort of an interesting troublemaking figure. So if you're the player who likes to go in and kick things over in the dreamlands, you probably want to play Dali. Uh, I guess the, the, you, you have a lot of directions to go with Dali, and I guess intentionally so. He did everything he possibly could to make sure that you, uh, that you, that you could go in all kinds of different directions. Where do we want to go from the, the sort of the general notion of Dali? Do we want to talk about his sort of uh, notion of an apolitical surrealism that a lot of people say is actually his cover for not actually being of the left at all, that he was more of a right-wing surrealist. Uh, Zut Alors, shock, amazement, melt clocks everywhere. Right. Or do we want to talk about uh, just some of his crazy antics that we love? Well, we can talk about his politics for a while. And really, his he was subversive of whatever structure he tried to enter in his young years. And so mm -hmm. he was sort of emotionally left during his early period, but he would always be um, sending up the more serious leftist because he, he for example one thing he said is that if, if, if you're a leftist with a sense of humor I, I have to imagine is a is a ongoing temptation uh, right <laughs> um, for example he would shock Breton by saying uh, because of course as we talked about earlier the surrealists sort of flirted intellectually with the idea of actual terrorism um, and he shocked Breton one time by saying well if you really want to commit a surreal act you don't blow up the front of the train where the first class passengers are, you blow up the cheap 
seats because that's more shocking and more scandalous. He was the one who pointed out to Breton that by having a system and a structure uh, as tight as Marxism, that surrealism could never be truly surreal. But the real thing that he disturbed them by saying early on was he would talk about his fascination with sex Hitler, which I believe we promised people we would get to. Yes. And so he would uh, shock everybody in the group by talking about his dreams in which he had these sexual encounters uh, with a uh, sex Hitler. I think that's actually my term, but uh, yeah. w- with a sexualized Hitler who was a had the head of actual Hitler, but the uh, body of a uh, bosomy Oktoberfest uh, server. And uh, he would describe this in great detail to them and just uh, upset them. And he thought Hitler was hilarious in 33. And the rest of them had to like were continually going at him to uh, end his fascination with Hitler because it was just uh, so irreverent uh, yeah. at a time when, you know, if it weren't just sort of, you weren't being serious about him, you were putting the whole notion of politics into question. So it's not that he was apolitical, it's that he was irreverent about politics. Mm-hmm. And that led to the famous Night of Many Sweaters, where uh, Breton invited Dali to his apartment to be interrogated on his very uh, deviations from uh, Surrealist, that is Breton's doctrine. Um, and many of the other sort of lesser figures in the movement would have withered beneath this treatment, this basically intellectual kangaroo court. So Dali shows up to his apartment either with a fever or just really sweaty because he's wearing 12 to 15 sweaters. And throughout this procedure, which Breton is trying to conduct in his serious, uh, pedantic fashion, Dali is responding with this barrage of gobbledygook defending himself and periodically stripping off one of his sweaters. And this is just so utterly distracting to everyone around, including Breton. And finally, he winds up, you know, stripped to the waist and capering around, uh, sweating like a fiend, that Breton is so baffled that he's unable to throw him out of the movement. Later on, Dali does go to the right. Uh, this happens after uh, the Spanish Civil War when revolutionaries uh, attack the vacation uh, town where his family lives during the summer and they destroy Dali's home, they destroy Dali's father's home, they attack and probably rape his sister, uh, which is enough to turn anybody off anybody. Yeah, political I mean, movement. You'd, um, you'd, and, you'd, you'd take that wrong, I would yeah. think. Um, and so he switches on a dime from uh, being uh, anti-Franco to pro-Franco, which he remains uh, for the rest of his life and gets Franco to build him a groovy museum. And uh, later, in uh, during the war in New York, uh, Breton and Ernst bump into him on the street, and he holds out his hand for them to shake his hand, and they say we do not shake hands with fascists. And he corrects him and says, I am not a fascist. I am an opportunist, Um, (laughs) which uh, makes him, you know, and so that's what's subversive about him politically is that he is apolitical in the way that a, uh, a chancer and a trickster is, is apolitical. He plays with political thought, but not in the way that anybody on the spectrum wants him to. Yeah. And he, he keeps doing Hitler stuff even after the war, right? He's, he does um, Hitler masturbating. He does, um, uh, uh, other sort of um, Hitlery stuff, uh, Hitler's face in a landscape type things. I mean, he's he's as obsessed with Hitler, the cultural product, I guess, as he is with any of the other cultural products that he puts into his paintings. But 
Right, and, the, and in the game, sex, of course, is a dream form that you can encounter in the dreamlands. So, as you should. So maybe, you know, Sex Hitler survived the war unlike uh, regular Hitler. <laughs> yes, Sex Hitler head, head out in Sex Argentina, which is where you would go. Um, my favorite uh, crazy Dolly thing is when he lectures on surrealism in London in a diving suit. And he nearly dies, and everyone thinks it's a surrealist act, and so no one helps him until, like, the very, very end, which would have been the most surreal. I mean, that if, if it was an Unknown Armies game, that's when he ascends and is replaced by Tulpa Dali, and that's why Tulpa Dali never does anything, is because he actually died in that, um, uh, in, in that uh, uh, suit and ascended as the surrealist archetypal. Yes, that's a very famous greenness, and that's in, in 36, and that's part of his attempt to bring surrealism to London. He did a much better job of bringing surrealism to America because the British were very resistant to uh, modernism of, in all of its forms, including surrealism. But America ate it up, and he, his first trip to America, he became a big... Um, media splash. He was even on the cover of Time magazine with a portrait by Man Ray. And he uh, did scandalize people. Uh, he and Gala showed up at this big ball, this costume ball, and she was wearing uh, dismembered doll parts on her hat. And uh, somehow, although they do not seem to have suggested this themselves, it was assumed that this was a reference to the uh, murder of the Lindbergh baby. And so mm. that crazed a, a, a big stir, and he apologized. Uh, for anyone thinking that this uh, disturbing hat was a specific reference to a specific uh, murdered child. And then when he got back to Paris, the Surrealists were angry at him for disavowing the shockingness of that imagery. Um, but over the years, he became uh, more and more sort of a symbol of when, even when he abandoned surrealism, he became sort of a symbol for people of artistic craziness and creative freedom and the, uh, ultimate ego of the artist and so you know he winds up uh doing a hologram of alice cooper's brain in the, in mm -hmm. the 70s and stuff and so um and if people think of surrealism as uh, sort of silly and crazy in part they're doing it because of uh, python and stuff but in part they're doing it because of later dolly the media figure and by making his media presence part of his art of course he was doing uh, something incredibly Innovative. He was the first one to do that, and he was laying down the the uh, model for Warhol and Banksy and a whole bunch of uh, other mm -hmm. people who came uh, after that. Also, he withdrew from the gallery system, and Gala would just sell his work directly to this group of Dali collectors that she cultivated. And so, uh, in that, uh, you know, he became the, uh, the forerunner Kickstarter, <laughs> yeah, of, of Thomas Kincaid, yeah. Um, and so, uh, and, uh, because of that, you know, they wound up doing stuff that was dodgy. So he would just sign pieces of paper and then later, uh, there would be prints made of them. And so the, the authentication problem for Dali prints is, is huge because, uh, you know, Gala escaped the, uh, Russia before the revolution, but her, uh, brother starved to death in it. And she was throughout her life, uh, really, uh, focused on uh on Survival. having money including money to uh <laughs> lavish on her uh, various lovers and stuff so she she comes off as i think i said in an earlier episode very badly in the biographies but i think there's a a way to uh rehabilitate her now from uh, a perspective of sort of empathy for where she came from and also uh that a lot of the um bile that uh got sent her way definitely has a misogynist uh, taint to it i think also I mean, in a sense, if you are battening on an art market that you are simultaneously destroying with your 
uh, you know, a creation of, of self-forgeries and messing with authenticity, that is a surreal act, right? That's far more surreal than going around and carefully telling people that that's an authentic Kachina and that's a fake Kachina, like Andre Breton. I mean, you're, 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 by destroying the even possibility of understanding whether Dali made something, that's, that's at the very least nihilistic, if not, you know, f- full on surreal. And in the context of what the art world has become now, you know, someone who did that would, would be maybe a hero, possibly. Well, and, and Jeff Koons is a current example of someone who leads you to question what is actually the production of a particular artist, because he will think up a weirdo ceramic figure, but he doesn't actually make anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty sure that neither Dali nor Gala thought of it in those terms. Um, they just wanted more money. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the, the, the figure of Dali of, of is so great, of course, that he transcends even Dali. So you could certainly make that argument for him. Yeah, I mean, and at, at some point, I mean, uh, if you don't have a, a a dog in the fight of whether or not something is um, correctly surrealist, which is uh, the hilarious, you know, misprision as far as I'm concerned, I, I think you can sort of look at Dali, you know, like you're looking at an art exhibit, and that certainly is how he lived his life. Right. And I, I don't think you're really even being that unfair to Dali to say that his surreal destruction of his own existence is also a surreal act. His love of money was definitely intentionally part of his trickster persona. So you don't mm-hmm. have to go too many steps uh, beyond that to uh, say that his authentication issues are also part of that. So, um, so what else have we got? That's, I mean, Dolly is, is literally one of those guys that you just dip into anywhere and crazy comes up. There's not a point at which you, you say, nope, we're done with Dolly you know, we've, we've, we've hit the bottom of that. Well, is there more things that we can look at that make him, I mean, if, if no one, God forbid, if no one plays, uh, Dali, how do you, as the GM put Dali into it without making him the Elminster of surrealism and just sort of taking over the game utterly to go back to our NPC question? Um, I think what you do is, is that you always wind up where he has just been and Mm. created some sort of weird problem but because he's an elusive, slippery figure, you can't quite catch up to him. And I think in most groups, though, you know, somebody wants Fireball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone wants Fireball. Yeah, I mean, and, and certainly if you're playing uh, Dreamhounds with sort of the average gamer, the Dali is going to be a, a familiar name, and they're and they're going to cling onto that just because they know the name, and they'll feel like, oh, I can I can do this. And then once they read how much fun he is, obviously. You'll you'll never you'll never pry their um uh, their lobsters off that particular telephone. Right, and if you've got Dali in your group, all you need to do is go to the internet and put a bunch of his paintings from the twenty nine and the early thirties uh, on a Pinterest page, and each one of them is a story hook. Yeah. So it's like, let's go here and meet this guy who's hatching from an egg that looks like the globe. What's let's, the deal with that? Well, let's let's go answer the the crying phone over the picture of Hitler. Yeah, that, that's a whole scenario right there. And we haven't even gotten to um, Shane Andalou, his uh, early experimental film that he made with Louis Bunuel, which is right. yeah. one of the most influential films of all time. And you can just, you know, take. Uh, a few images from that and you can connect those together to uh, to make a scenario. So he's, he's an incredibly uh, rich figure and at this time he's more of a real person than he is a cartoon character that he uh, creates out of himself later. Now, um, I suppose we could talk more about Bunuel, but I, I kind of want to talk about uh, what he calls the paranoiac critical method because that sounds like how I write, actually. What have, 
What what can you tell us about paranoiac criticism? So it is basically about finding uh, strange juxtapositions and then seeing what emotional, intellectual, even magical charge comes out of them. So it's about, it's a theory that goes beyond the rationalism of traditional criticism, including Breton's traditional criticism. So Sex Hitler um, mm -hmm. is precisely an example of the paranoia critical theory, uh, which he argued uh, could bring about apocalyptic changes to uh, utterly transform the world. So, yeah, there's nothing to do with that in a DreamHounds campaign. And so the idea of taking two things that are seem that completely not to belong together, and when you put them together, people get angry and shocked at you. The power of that, the collision of those ideas, is the thing that induces the state of paranoia. Of uh, It's sort of a, a way of artificially inducing in yourself a psychotic break that has the power and is worth exploring and is worth interesting be uh, because in contradictions is where creativity and intellectual power lie. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what Kessler is doing with Bisociation in the 50s is sort of a more, ta a slightly tamer version, I would say, of, of paranoiac criticism. And then apparently that becomes a big part of deconstructionists that they, you know, Lacan and guys like that talk about you know, every meaning contains its anti-meaning. And then that's sort of, I guess, Derrida does that, or Foucault does that first. Derrida probably does it. But that's a big part of deconstructionism. And so, obviously, be careful, kids. It can it can go wrong. <laughs> it can all lead to Derrida. It can all lead to or from Derrida. Do we have uh, other awesome hooks on, on Dali? Does he have any other uh, weird buddies that we should know about besides his weird surrealist buddies? Does he hang out with other... Uh, magicians or other um, uh, Nazis or anybody? When the Nazis are actually approaching, he, he loses his sense of comedy surrounding them. I guess yeah. the, the final little anecdote uh, I would mention is one of the great figures that Breton took inspiration from was Freud. And one of the great frustrations of his life was that all of his attempts to approach Freud uh, and gain an audience with him were essentially fruitless. And I think he did have a little meeting with him that went nowhere. And that <laughs> always uh, drove Breton crazy. So guess who gets to meet Freud and who Freud really takes the shine to? Hi, I'm going to guess Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali. Yeah. yeah. So he's sort Excellent. of the, the, the Bugs Bunny uh, of surrealism if uh, Bugs Bunny uh, is a uh, has weird sadomastic desires and wants Which, to. Which I think if you watch the early Bugs Bunny, you can certainly, you can make that does. argument. Yes. Um, I mean, he, he, let's just say Elmer Fudd ain't there for the hunting anymore. Yes. Uh, tricksters <laughs> have sharp edges, even right. no matter how you try to sand them off. Okay, well, um, as I uh, Im implied, we could talk about Dali forever, but that would not be a surrealist act. And the most surrealist act is to stop talking about Salvador Dali and move on out of the podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Covetous Poet Publishing. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Prevent post-mortems on this podcast. Hit the donate button at kenderobintalkaboutstuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Jim Lanter. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or melting clock by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.